Good afternoon again. If you have a Bible, would you take it and turn to Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah 58. Last week we entered into the the final major section of the book of Isaiah where the Messiah is shown to be an anointed conqueror and where we are instructed in how we are to, to live in light of the salvation that has come through the suffering servant, Isaiah 53, and in the hope of his return, Isaiah 66. How do we live in this middle time? And so we will continue to, to think about that today. Uh, a power drill, not sure if you have one, but it's a really useful tool in, in home repairs and many other projects. I don't have a, a high-end drill, but it gets the job done. It gets the job done as long as I'm using it correctly. And I would say more times than I would like to admit that I have found myself trying to, to drive a screw into a board only to, to realize that I have the drill set in, in reverse. <laughs> Anyone else admit that they've done that? Um, it's, it's spinning in the, in the wrong direction and the screw is never gonna catch in the wood no matter how hard I push on the back of it or how uh, firmly I squeeze the trigger and get that motor going faster and faster. It's never gonna catch, it's not gonna work. Isaiah chapter 58 is in many ways parallel to Isaiah 56, one through eight that we looked at last week in that it's this description of how we are to live as we wait for the Lord's return. It helps us see the kind of true righteousness that flows from faith in the servant. However, it confronts us with the reality that we often seek to conform to outward shows of devotion and religion while our hearts are far from the Lord. It shows us that while we who are in Christ have this desire to seek the Lord and to seek his righteousness, the drill of our lives is naturally set in reverse. And we often drift into resting on our own strength and our own thinking when it comes to to following God's righteousness. But if we do that, if we think in our own way about what righteousness is, no matter how much muscle we put behind those self-powered efforts, we'll never get the results that we're looking for until we let the Lord reverse the way that we understand what righteousness is and let the Lord empower us to walk in his ways. Sometimes we, we strive to draw near to the Lord, but the ways that we choose to do so don't bring the expected blessings that we're looking for, which is frustrating. We're trying to do the right thing. We're trying to, to live in the righteousness of, of, of God's kingdom as we wait for his return. But, but the Lord seems, seems deaf to us. We presume that we're chasing after him, but he seems to get further and further away from us in our efforts. And so what we need is we need God's word to make clear the wrong ways that we are seeking after the Lord, as well as the right ways that we are called to seek after him. But this is not as simple as replacing one list of activities with another, is it? No, the, the Lord is always after our hearts. And so we, we have to, to see how our hearts are naturally set in reverse and drawn towards false and heartless religion and only then can we see how the Father longs for us to, to walk in his ways because he's awakened us to, to delight in the path of true righteousness. He has changed our hearts. Here in chapter 58, this true righteousness is spelled out in terms of fasting and Sabbath. 
And in exposing our false religion and making clear what true devotion is, this is what Isaiah says to us today. He says, seek the true fasting and Sabbath resting that will bring God's blessing. Seek the true fasting and Sabbath resting that will bring God's blessing. Brothers and sisters, if we have been changed by the Lord and we've been filled with his spirit, then we long to walk in ways that would please him as we wait for his return. On our own, we will be drawn into surface and false religion. But by his grace, we can walk in the ways of true righteousness. We can be led to seek the true fasting and the true Sabbath resting that will bring God's blessing. And this is what's going to fill us with the joy that we are all longing for. But the first step onto this path is to hear God's kindness in the way that he exposes our sin. And this is what we find in Isaiah 58, one through five, namely God's gracious rebuke. God's gracious rebuke is is what we'll think about in verses one through five of chapter 58. Let's read those verses. The Lord says, cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. This is what the people say. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow, his head, to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast? and a day acceptable to the Lord. It's hard to convince people to change when they think that what they are doing is right. And so in this gracious rebuke, the Lord commands Isaiah to speak clearly and loudly and tell the people that they're on the wrong road. You remember that the leaders of Israel back at the end of chapter 56 had failed to expose the sin of the people. So Isaiah now is called to do so. And his voice is to be loud and clear, almost like the trumpets that would call all of Israel together when they were in the wilderness. Imagine someone in here blowing a trumpet. It would pierce this room. And that's what Isaiah's voice is to be like. It's to to wake everyone up and it's to wake us up. Because on the surface, God's people look very religious. They seem to be eager to seek the Lord and to delight in his ways and in drawing near to him. They look like they're seeking the Lord each day. They appear to be observing Sabbath. They're even fasting. But it is in the words of one pastor I heard preach this passage, in the words of Paul Clark, it's as if religion, taken from that phrase in verse two, as if religion, which makes me think about some sort of 80s valley girl which would say something like, you think Israel is truly seeking the Lord? As if, you know, or yeah, right. (laughs) And so too, our, our outward shows of devotion may fool those around us, but the Lord knows our heart. He knows if we are seeking him or if we're seeking ourselves and our own sinful pleasures. 
for just trying to impress others with outward shows of devotion or just trying to get what we want from him. The questions of, of verse three reveal that God's people were in fact seeking after the Lord like the nations sought after their idols. They ask the Lord why, since they have fasted and humbled him, themselves, why has he not seen their actions and blessed them? This was not only as if religion, it's quid pro quo religion. God will give you this if you give us what we want. They were treating the Lord like an idol who will supposedly give the worshiper what he wants if he brings the right food offering. They were treating the Lord like a, like a vending machine, put in the right offering, press the right buttons and you'll get what you want. This kind of false religion seeks a shortcut to God's blessings. It seeks the easiest path to getting what we want from the Lord without any sacrifice on our part. But we can't fool the Lord. We can't fool the Lord. If you take a shortcut in a race, you're disqualified and you don't get the prize at the finish line. And false religion doesn't bring the Lord's blessings that we're looking for. The Lord responds to all of this in verses four and five, telling his people that they, that, that they know, in the, what, he tells the people what I think they probably know in their hearts, namely that their fasting is actually not for him, it's for them. And fasting for selfish motives doesn't accomplish its intended purpose. Fasting is meant to fill us with this longing for God so that our physical hunger leads our hearts to desire the Lord more than food. Our hunger says, this is how much I long for the Lord and his ways. But given their selfish motives, Israel's fasting just makes them more hungry. And if you're hungry long enough, you know what you get? You get hangry. <laughs> and that's what happens here. Verse four is clear that all their fasting led them to fighting, it led them to violence against their fellow image bearers because they weren't doing it for the right reason. Practices that were intended to bring out the, the best blessings from the Lord brought out the worst in the people that were practicing them. They couldn't hide their selfishness. Their actions revealed their hearts. And verse five sort of indicates the formalism of all of it. It's as if they say to one another, uh, bow like this and wear sackcloth like that and spread ashes like this and then the Lord will be happy with us. Just do it in the right order and in the right way and then God will respond to you. It's ritualistic formalism and that kind of ritualistic formalism is what makes up all false religion. We're quick to identify it in in Islam or in Roman Catholicism or in paganism, but it's also alive and well in each of us. We imagine that our church attendance or our morning devotions and prayers or the money that we give to, to church, that assures God's blessings in our lives. And if we fast, well, then the blessings are gonna definitely come down. This is the same spirit that the Pharisees exemplified in the Gospels a spirit that Jesus rebuked as one that honored the Lord with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. In that vein, this is what Jesus said in Luke 18, nine through 14. He said this, quote, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. This is his message. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. 
But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Why does God give a a gracious rebuke like the one here in Isaiah 58 or even like the one in Luke 18? So that we would humble ourselves and we would repent. So that we would see our false religion and we would beat our breast and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So that we would renounce false religion and we would throw off these kinds of ritualistic practices that we think will bring us blessing but only lead us to hurting and harming other people. And as we repent, we're called to return to the message of the gospel, whether for the first time or for the five millionth time. It's the message that all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags, that, that no amount of fasting or prayer or outward religion will ever earn us the blessing of salvation. Our only hope is to repent of our sins and the sinfulness of even our righteousness and to trust in the grace of God purchased for us by Jesus Jesus, who was perfectly righteous, who died for our righteousness. Jesus, who always obeyed from the heart and gives us a new heart so that we can obey him. We who are in Christ, we, we know this. We, we can define justification by faith alone in Christ alone. We would never imagine saying that our works could ever save us. But the danger we face, I think, is the same danger that the Galatians faced. Having begun by the Spirit, we seek to be perfected by the flesh. We know the gospel, and we know the fact that we can't save ourselves, but we begin to think that our righteousness is realized in some different way other than repentance and faith, that our efforts are needed. But even in that, I think there's a sense in which we are smart enough to know that we can't practice true righteousness. So what do we do? We go for formalism. We go for rituals. We chase spiritual checklists because true righteousness is only possible through the power of the Spirit. But that's the power that we have if we're in Christ. So why would we settle for empty religion? Why would we settle for ritualistic practices when God has given us his Spirit so that we can walk in the ways of true righteousness? Why would we treat God like a vending machine or an idol when he is our father. Besides all of our outward shows of religion, they just make us miserable. They just cause us to treat others poorly and with contempt. So why not enter into the true righteousness that's offered through a life of repentance and faith? Why not find true joy and delight by walking in real righteousness, not these ritualistic false religion practices? And so this is then where we we move from God's gracious rebuke to God's gracious invitation in verses 6 through 14. God's gracious invitation. And the invitation is to true righteousness. The invitation is to true fasting and true Sabbath resting, unlike the formalism and the self-focused fasting of verses 1 through 5. The Lord makes it clear here that that true fasting, in the words of Barry Webb, quote, is not simply to go without food on the set fast days, but to adopt a lifestyle in which self-indulgence and greed are totally given up and replaced by generosity 
towards the poor. These verses reveal that, that the logic of true righteousness goes against our natural reasoning. We look to, to check boxes, but the Lord wants to change our hearts and to cause our hearts to, be fi- to, to fill the world with his love and, and with his grace. We think pleasure is found outside of him when he is actually the only one who will bring us joy. And if we seek his true righteousness, then the Lord will bless us. If we seek the Lord's pleasure rather than our own pleasure, then we will delight the Lord and we will delight in the Lord. Well, look with me at, at verses 6 through 14. There's, there's, as we read it, you'll see this. There's three cycles of if-then statements. If this, then this. Uh, the first if statements are in verses 6 and 7. The if is implied, but you'll see the, the then in verse 8 and then it'll be easier to spot in the rest of the chapter. Isaiah 58, beginning in verse six, God's word again. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, Then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. And you shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth and will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." From the, the first series of if-then statements in verses verse 6 through 9a, we'll call it, the first half of verse 9, it's clear that the, the Lord has something very different than us in mind. Than, than, he has something very different than, than heartless, personal, religious practices done on a particular day when he thinks about righteousness. His righteousness is much more than fasting. Rather, he is he's looking for the kind of life that flows from a heart that is shaped by the right practice of fasting. He's, he's looking for the fruit of the Spirit that denies self for the good of others and the glory of God. And so he says to us in verses 6 through 7, amazing things. If you loose the bonds of wickedness, undo the straps of the yoke, let the oppressed go free, break every yoke, share your bread with the hungry, bring the homeless poor into your house, cover the naked and do not hide from your relatives in need, then all of the blessings of verses eight and nine will be yours. 
Righteousness is focused on seeking the good and the flourishing of our fellow human beings. And blessing flows from doing that. Let's try to break these things down. Verse 6 focuses on breaking the yokes of wickedness that harm and oppress people. Motyer summarizes this as the fight against all forms of, quote, injustice, inhumanity, and inequality. I think that's helpful. That's what he's speaking about in verse 6. Fighting against all forms of injustice, inhumanity, or inequality. For Isaiah's audience, the focus seems to be on the exploitation of, of their workers. Back in, in verses 3 and 4, while fasting, what were, the, what were the people who were fasting doing? They were beating their workers. And, and the continual focus on Sabbath in this section may have to do with them not letting their servants rest or ignoring principles like the Sabbath year or the year of Jubilee. So what do we do if we don't have employees working in our fields? Did these words not apply to us? <laughs> well, if, if they extend to all forms of injustice and inhumanity and inequality, then the applications for the follower of Jesus are numberless. Righteousness becomes protecting the vulnerable, becomes seeking justice for the oppressed. Let me give you some examples. We're to be advocates for victims of all kinds of abuse. We're to be advocates for those who are exploited through things like sex trafficking or pornography, and we're certainly not to be party to any of that wickedness. We, we fight against the mistreatment of immigrants. We speak against racism in all of its forms. We think hard about what it means for someone to have a livable wage and not be exploited by their employer, like we see even earlier in this passage. We think about gender equality in the workplace and beyond. We're advocates for the unborn whose lives are threatened in the name of choice. We fight against genocide and wars that harm the most vulnerable people in our world and on and on and on. Any injustice, any inhumanity, any inequality in the world should be the concern of the follower of Jesus. That radical breaking of all yokes and that breaking of wicked chains, that, says God, is righteousness. Not fasting on some day and thinking you'll get what you want. Verse seven goes further. It takes us into the practical needs of individuals as followers of Jesus are, are called to, to help those in need of food, shelter, and clothing. We're to share our bread and our homes and our clothes with those who are in need. That's righteousness. We don't exploit those folks and we don't ignore them. We, rather, we seek practical ways to help the poor that are among us. And they are among us. I was on ReCenter Ministries' website, the ministry here in Louisville that our church supports. They're, they share these statistics. In our city on January 30th, 2019, 1,071 people were experiencing homelessness. It said, in our city, there are 40 to 70 homeless families on the waiting list for emergency shelters on any given night. In 2019, the average eviction rate was 14 households per day, 14 people being kicked out of their home per day. Louisville's eviction rate, 4.82%, is two times the national average. Can you imagine being kicked out of your home and not knowing where you're going to go? In the United States, there were 567,715 people experiencing homelessness in 2019. Over half a million people 
experiencing homelessness. Righteousness, then, looks like not forgetting those folks and not ignoring them. It looks like caring for the most vulnerable and also, ironically, not neglecting your family in the process. That's the end of verse seven. That last phrase of verse seven reminds us that we could meet all the needs of many and neglect the people that are right in front of us. We can neglect the needs of our family or even our church family, but that's our responsibility too. Now, I don't know about you, but I look at this list and I can see why someone would say, how about I just don't eat a meal for a day and we call that righteousness? Doesn't that seem a lot easier? And we start to convince ourselves that that's what righteousness is. I'll fast and then the Lord will be happy. Fasting sounds easy all of a sudden, doesn't it? True righteousness is difficult. Brothers and sisters, it's impossible. (laughs) It's impossible apart from the Spirit of God because it's self-sacrificial and it's cross-shaped. Now remember, Jesus has fulfilled this true righteousness on our behalf. He has done it for us. We're not earning our salvation by walking in these ways. But if we are his children, then he invites we who have been found in him, we who have found him to be our final righteousness to reflect him as we live lives of righteousness in our world. And when we do, we'll know the blessings that flow from this kind of righteousness. What are those blessings? I invite you to meditate on verses eight and and nine, but I'll try to summarize. In in verse eight, light comes into our lives like that of dawn. There's a newness of life that flows through us. Healing and restoration are spoken of. This is the kind of righteousness that brings the blessing of security. It becomes a guard in front and behind us. And then in the final part of verse nine, there's a, a depth of fellowship and intimacy with the Lord so that he hears our cries. Newness of life, healing and restoration, security, fellowship with the Lord. This is not something that this righteousness has purchased for us, but it is simply that in in seeking to bless others, especially those that are in need, we find that we are closest to the heart of the Father. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because our father is a father who was willing to send his son to rescue us when we were oppressed, when we were homeless, when we were hungry, and when we were naked. And when we reflect his heart in this world, we know his blessings because we're closest to his heart. The second half of of verse 9 and the first part of verse 10 offer some more if statements similar to those in verses 6 and 7. If you take away the yoke, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour out yourself for the hungry, if you satisfy the desire of the afflicted. These are obviously very similar, aren't they, to the ones in verses six and seven. I think you can make an argument that they go a little bit beyond verses six and seven. There's a depth of of personal involvement. I'm not just helping someone. I'm investing in their lives and being a part of them. And I'm not even just meeting their needs, but I don't even want people pointing their finger in accusation at them. There's a giving of ourselves to help people in need. And the result of this righteousness, more blessing. 10b through verse 12 are more blessings. They say in the darkest valleys, the Lord's gonna bring light and guidance to us. In scorched and dry places, he's gonna bring satisfaction and strength to our lives. 
He will bring us fresh and refreshing water from outside of us that will allow us to continue to bear fruit and continue to do this work. When we're dry, he will water us. When we're weary in well-doing, he will refresh us. And such blessing will continue into the generations to come, building up the ruins and repairing the breaches. We're moving quickly now, but the final cycle of if-then statements is in verses 13 and 14. And we move from fasting to Sabbath. The surprise of Sabbath again in this passage. Isaiah says, if you stop breaking the Sabbath and instead delight in the Sabbath, then you will find your delight in the Lord. Remember from last week that keeping Sabbath has to do with ceasing from ordinary work once a week as a way of honoring the Lord, as a way of trusting in him as the provider of all we need from salvation to everything else in our lives. But why does Isaiah end this chapter on Sabbath? Here's one possible reason. What the chapter begin with? It began with fasting. The only formal fast in the Jewish calendar was the Day of Atonement. That was it. Contrary to what we might think, the Sabbath was not a day of fasting. Sabbath was a day of feasting. Sabbath was a day of celebration in the Lord. It was a day of rest and joy. It was a day to cease from work. It was a a day for Israel's good. And in the words of Jesus, man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. In other words, the Sabbath was a gift to humanity, which means that the righteousness here is a call to stop seeking our own pleasures, which are confused and distorted anyways, and instead to delight in the Lord, who is the one that we are truly longing for. Sabbath is this invitation to seek righteousness. How? Through resting. (laughs) Through resting and through allowing others to rest. It's a righteousness of faith that says, I don't need to do anything because the Lord will provide for all my needs. Isn't it just like us? Isn't it just like us that what, to think that what the Lord really wants from us is fasting, when in fact his invitation is to rest and feasting on the Sabbath? That we think he wants us to fast, but he wants us to feast? That's what righteousness is? We spend money, you remember, on, on, on what is not bread, when the eternal feast is laid out in front of us. But if we would press into the blessings of Sabbath, then we would find our delight in the Lord. God's gracious invitation is ultimately not just to righteousness, it's to to joy and delight, which is what flows from true righteousness. His righteousness brings us joy. Breaking yokes of wickedness brings joy. Blessing the needy brings joy. Resting and feasting brings joy. Joy, righteousness is not drudgery. Righteousness brings joy and gladness into our lives. Here's the breathtaking, beautiful truth of these these verses. If we seek our own pleasure, we will be empty. But if we seek the pleasure of the Lord, then he will bring us pleasure as well. That's what Jesus says in Luke 9, 23 to 24. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. It's difficult. And follow me. For whoever, will, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, lays it down for my sake, 
He will save it. Three concluding thoughts to try to bring this all together for us. They're probably a little long, but I'll try to, I'll say them a couple times. <laughs> the righteousness of the kingdom is deeper than external practices. The righteousness of the, of the kingdom is deeper than external practices. That means it's harder. <laughs> it's more difficult. It's more challenging. It's only possible through God's spirit. But it's deeper in the sense that it's better. It's so much better. Here's what our world doesn't need. Our world doesn't need Christians who think that fasting is an end in and of itself. Society doesn't need us to be hungry for a day and neglect those who are hungry every day. What it needs is Christians who fast and therefore see the value of Christ so much so that they lay down their lives for the good of others, for the oppressed and for the homeless and for the hurting. And what's amazing when you think about Matthew 25 that Mark read earlier, that to lay down our lives, it's also to lay down our lives for Christ. Because Matthew 25 says that if we feed the, the hungry and we give a cup of cold water to the thirsty and we visit those that are in prison, who are we doing it for? We're doing it for him. We're doing it for Christ. So the righteousness of the kingdom is deeper than external practices, which makes me say, secondly, the righteousness of the kingdom is more delightful than external practices. <laughs> the righteousness of the kingdom is more delightful than external practices. The, the joy of serving those in need and resting in Jesus is greater than any act of external religion that you can come up with. If you have ever poured out yourself in service to others, and so many of you have, and we've done it together as a church too, if you've ever done that, you know the joy that comes from that sacrificial love. You know the, the fatigue and the tiredness and the pain that comes from it, but also the joy. You know the blessing that flows from that kind of true righteousness. And if we know that, then you know what else we know? We know in some way why Jesus endured the cross and despised its shame. Why? Because of the joy that was set before him, because there's joy in laying down your life for the good of others, especially those in deep need. The righteousness of the kingdom is deeper than external practices. The righteousness of the kingdom is more delightful than external practices. And finally, the blessings of true righteousness are what our souls are aching for. The blessings of true righteousness are what our souls are really aching for. If you go back through and you look at the then statements in verses 6 through 14, you will find Everything that you long for in your life is almost summed up, I think, in these blessings. Here's, here's how I try to summarize them. What are the blessings that flow from true righteousness? Light and life. Healing and restoration. Security and safety. Deep fellowship with the Lord. Light and guidance in our lives. Satisfaction and strength. Delight in the Lord and the fulfillment of every covenant promise. Those are the blessings that flow from true righteousness. What more could you ask for? That's everything that we long for as followers of Jesus. And these blessings are ours through Christ because of his righteousness and they flow to us as we lay down our lives to bless others.
So brothers and sisters, seek the true fasting and the true Sabbath resting that will bring God's blessing. And let me say, let's seek it together as a body of, of believers. Let's, let's press into and pray that God would reveal how we might be people who break bonds of injustice, people who help those in need of food and clothing and shelter, that we might work together to know how to rest in the Lord and how to invite others into that rest through the gospel and through other means. Jesus has purchased our salvation. He has given us his spirit so that we can move beyond external acts of false religion and move into deep blessing that comes from true righteousness. He has laid down his life so that we can have the power to lay down our lives for the good of others. And if we choose not to, we're not just missing true righteousness, we're missing all the blessings that he offers to us through lives that are lived in that way. So may we learn to take the light in the Lord as we love others in his name and for his glory. Let's take a moment of silence and allow God's spirit to impress these truths on our hearts and then I will pray. Oh, Father, thank you for your gracious rebuke. Thank you for not letting us sit in religious formalism and think that we are pleasing you. Thank you for exposing our selfishness and our own pleasure-seeking that is not seeking your glory. Lord, forgive us for treating you like an idol for treating you in some way as a genie that's going to give us what we want if we just say the right thing or do the right thing. Lord, and thank you for this gracious invitation to join you in the work of true righteousness, to join you in, in blessing those in deep need. Lord, open our eyes. I think Trevor prayed that earlier, Lord. It's such a, a great application. Lord, just open our eyes to the needs around us to the needs in our homes, to the needs in our communities, to the needs of our neighbors, to the needs of our church. Lord, help us to, to not ignore those that are in deep need, but to run to them. Thank you, Jesus, that you have done that for us. That you came to us when we were dead in our sins and you've made us alive. And Lord, that you invite us into this ministry of of blessing those in need, taking them the gospel, giving them a cup of cold water in your name. Lord, we're grateful for your word. We would be lost in the dark. We'd think that we were righteous. Thank you, Lord, for Christ and his righteousness and this invitation to true righteousness in our lives. May your spirit lead us into it. We ask this all in Christ's name, amen.